Good morning. How are you? You're very welcome to the show. And, and listen, just in case you thought it was safe to stop being afraid, uh, the front of the Sunday Times, Omicron may be spreading at triple the official rate. So they're saying it could be up to 60,000 cases a day. And indeed, the piece in the business post we'll talk about in a while suggesting it could be even more than that. Uh, they had a quote Luke O'Neill here who was saying within two months, 40% of the world's population could be infected with Omicron. It certainly feels like that at the moment, doesn't it, in all of our lives? Um, the Sunday Independent is, um, is, is leading with it. Rest assured, everybody still is afraid and down in the dumps. Public believe pandemic will not end until 2023. Uh, that's 45% of people saying that in uh, a Sunday Independent Ireland Thinks opinion poll today. And that is by far the the biggest number uh, in, in, in terms of do people think in six months, 17% in a year, 12%. So 45% saying at least 2023. Um, the business post... I actually think this is, is, I think a lot of people would think this is kind of outrageous. Taxpayers lose as insurers keep millions in state funds cut from COVID payouts. So the Business Post has been flagging this before that, you know, the way a lot of uh, hospitality businesses also had insurance claims, which a lot of them had to fight hard to get. Um, and that the insurance companies are basically saying, well, you got X from the state, so we will be cutting that off your your repayment. So in effect, the state, again, and we're seeing this happening a bit. The state is kind of the insurer of last resort in situations. But in this situation, the state's acting as the insurer, even when the person has insurance that is valid and a valid payout. Um the Irish Sun on Sunday, like um, a lot of the tabloids, focuses on that very, very sad, tragic death of uh, Sinead O'Connor's son, uh, Shane. And it's just so sad. And that poor pet and poor Sinead, the very light of my life, she says there. Um, and uh, that's the front of the Irish Mail on Sunday as well and on the Sunday World. And I just want to, I was going to give you the front of the Telegraph, but you got that there in the news. The front of the Observer is kind of interesting today. So there's a guy called Dr. Clive Dix, who is the former head of the UK's vaccine task force. He says now, and this is not the Telegraph or the the Mail who have form with this kind of stuff. This is the Observer, you know. Uh, COVID should now be treated as an endemic virus similar to flu, according to Dix. And ministers should end mass vaccination after the booster campaign. He said... Says, listen to this. We now need to manage disease, not virus spread. So that that's a, a it's an interesting um, move in thinking. Now. Um our panel today, Christine Losher is Professor of Immunology and Associate Dean for Research at DCU, and Professor Alan Barrett is an economist and a director of the and director of the ESRI. And remote from us, but with us is uh, Kevin Doyle, Group Head of News at Media. Who's you're there, Kevin? Are you? I am, Brendan. How Good are you? Good morning, everyone. So, Kevin, we did we we had a vote as to who should be saved if there was an Omicron outbreak in the studio, and you won the vote as the most essential person to survive the outbreak so you'll be safe with the three of us here who knows but uh, we have all taken antigen tests so either that gives us a, a level of reassurance or else it's snake oil who knows anymore but anyway uh, on we will go um christine where are we at with this now i mean that's quite alarming that the 60 000, i think we all suspect this anyway but sixty thousand, possibly more cases a day yeah i mean look we're in a situation where 
our numbers are really high and they're way higher than we're actually measuring because our PCR kind of capacity is maxed out. Um, and we're probably not using that very well. There's been a lot in, in, in the papers today about uh, comments about how we better use our PCR system. So the numbers are really high. I suppose the general kind of consensus is, is that there's a degree of positivity in terms of the high case numbers of a virus that doesn't seem to be causing a severe illness in people. So are we may, happy to say may, now that this is much milder? Well, we it's, are. I, I don't think it's that it's mild, it's different, OK? So there's a couple of things is that, number one, we have a much higher vaccine wall than we've ever had before when we've dealt with any of the other variants. But the second thing is, is that we know now from our recent scientific research that actually the ability of that virus to infect deep in the lungs is just not there. So mm. it seems to be remaining very much in the upper respiratory tract which is actually why it might be more contagious because we're holding more viral load up here as opposed to down in the lungs. So is this a different disease so a different pandemic it is, we're it is with quite here, different. are we using the playbook of the last pandemic? So essentially even though we are seeing that the large case numbers are not translating into the kind of particularly the ICU cases that we would have seen before they are kind of disproportionately affecting people who are immunocompromised who have other underlying conditions and who are older so I think we can't get away from the fact that if we have high levels of disease there are still vulnerable populations okay. despite high but, levels of, of, of but maybe the focus goes back more to protecting the vulnerable which is what Clive Dix is saying there yeah and I think that we have because I think our booster campaign has been really really successful, particularly the acceleration that we saw through December. So I think that, you know, protecting our vulnerable is the most important thing we need to do in these scenarios. So but is I th- he right that we need to manage disease now and not uh, well, spread? I, I mean, I think if you look at Neffet's decisions around not introducing any more restrictions, I think we'll see that the mindset is changing. And that's because of Omicron. I don't think we would have necessarily saw that mindset change yeah. if we'd have stuck with Delta. So there are, I suppose... You know, advantages to Omicron in terms of it will boost the immunity levels in the population, but it will boost them to Omicron. And I suppose the the caveat is, is that there's a little bit of concern there about if another variant comes along and is very different, is, then is that the protection va- may not be as good against the yeah, next Yeah, no, one. is the next variant likely to be an Omicron-based variant? Not necessarily. No. So if you look at all of the variants that have arisen, they're, they're cousins as opposed to mammies yeah. and daughters, you know, so they're, they're related, but they've all come from the original. The Omicron one is a very, very unusual one. The fact that a, a variant would arise with so many mutations from zero to kind of that many mutations is quite unusual. So it may have been an advantage in that we're getting a lot of this kind of population immunity from a milder form um, or something that's not causing a severe disease. And that's to do with vaccines plus its inability to affect, uh, uh, infect deep in the lungs. So now, I think you, that do we're... You agree, do you agree with 45% of the great unwashed that we won't be out of this till 2023 at least? Or I think, do you think normality like When you read that kind sooner? of headline about when it's over, I think yeah. it's, you know, I don't know if over is a word that we're going to be using to do with COVID for a while, but I think it's about how much it impacts on our lives and how much it impacts on the health system into the future. And I think if we're looking at the situation in the next three months post-Omicron surge, we could be in a pretty good position in terms of, even in the next two months, in terms of restrictions and kind of normality in everyday life. But I suppose the caveat always is what what happens next. And I think that's the... 
the curveball that we've been thrown the whole way. If we'd have been dealing just with Delta, we may have been dealing with hospitalisations and ICUs, but we had plateaued that curve coming into December. So mm. things may have looked very Delta, different. Do, do, this is a really dumb question now. Does Delta just go away now? Like we have 90 whatever percent is now Omicron. So has Delta... Will Delta go away? Yeah, I mean, it's almost like they kind of, it's outcompeted by Omicron. So um, almost almost what happens is, is that Omicron becomes dominant. And actually the case numbers of Delta, yeah, they, they completely drop. So it Although is a Delta case that is, Omicron, there's only a certain, like it's a zero sum game. There's a certain pie there of people to get a COVID disease. And Omicron and if is Omicron infecting is it, them. Delta is still infecting in other parts of the world. Yes, yes. yes. But ultimately... This is what happens. The new variant does squeeze out the old one. Exactly. And And there have been new variants that have arisen that haven't taken over. doesn't mean they're not there. But usually if they don't become dominant quite quickly, they're not as concerning. Okay. Okay. Kevin, can I ask you, um, so so we take all Christine's expert view there. The political view on this, is there a sense that something is shifting here? I mean, I was surprised a bit that yesterday that a member of Neffet, Mary Favier, was on here and kind of talking about stuff like disproportionate fear among older people and the need to balance out, obviously, the non-COVID healthcare and all that. But she did seem to be saying that we there needs to be a balance on our sanity as well. Is there a sense here that uh, a desire, however misguided it might be among politicians, to move things on here a bit and, and that recognition that people want their sanity and their lives back? I think there's probably a recognition, Brendan, that there is a war weariness and a point is coming where people can't take much more in this and and that that in itself uh, would lead to people letting their guard down if there is the restrictions are too heavy if they're not practical I, I know Mary Favour I don't want to misquote her talking about the close contact rules melting uh, the heads of people in Neffet so imagine what that's like for, for ordinary households and workers and, and employers um, so I think there, we are at a point where the government are kind of looking at this and wondering and reading the international um, data that is there and thinking that maybe Omicron does give us a way out uh, not of Covid forever but a way out of this kind of open up, shut down, open up, shut down uh, thing that we've been going through for nearly two years you, yet. You're so, not going to say that we're going to start living with the virus now, are we? Again. I, I, I don't think we'll use phraseology perhaps like that. But I think there is a sense that um, the cabinet over the Christmas period, and I know there was some criticism of the fact that they, many of them seemed to go into self-isolation and disappeared there for uh, at least a week, just as the, the massive wave of numbers had hit. We didn't really see any politicians in that phase, but they did uh, try to keep a cool head this time. There wasn't that um, kind of running and immediately slapping in new restrictions. I mean, Tony Holohan came out in the days around Christmas saying, don't do household gatherings. But he's never actually brought that in uh, or, or written to government telling them to, to stop household gatherings. So the rules as we sit here today is that you can still have uh, people from three other households into your home. But I suppose there is that question of, do you want to do that? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think we are moving a bit away from, and and I know personal responsibility has been huge in all of this all along, but I think we are possibly moving to a point where people are a lot more positive about where we're going to be this St. Patrick's Day, given that we've cancelled the last two. Yeah, yeah. But people are, I think a lot of people are in effect locking themselves down at the moment though anyway, more for as much for fear of the inconvenience to their lives as anything else. Alan, do you sense um, a, a shift? 
going on. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it's partly reflected in the sort of narrative uh, that's in the the newspaper today. Um, I mean, picking up some of Christine's remarks, uh, I think one of the things that's fascinating, if it is the case that the uh, the real case numbers are way in excess of what we're actually observing, so it's actually 40, 50, maybe 60,000 a day, uh, then the relationship between the actual numbers and the number of people going into ICU in particular and hospitalizations, like, again, there seems to be a really, really severe break between uh, infection rates and and, and the bad things that uh, we got used to. So clearly what's happening now is that the sort of the the benefit risk calculation around various measures is, is shifting. So, you know, again, if we go back a year, uh, 18 months, a a lot of the efforts around lockdowns, uh, around isolation and everything like that was to ensure that we were protecting people uh, against the very, very severe illness. That that risk um, calculation is is completely changing now. Mm -hmm. And most of the discussion really in the the papers today, apart from uh, around this idea that Omicron is not as as dangerous, uh, is around do we need to start looking at the the isolation rules, particularly uh, for people who are uh, close contacts but are not actually showing any symptoms um, and yeah. the possibility that antigen tests should put them in the clear. So okay. there is there is a real shift and I could just make you, just one can, other small can I, point. Can, I, can okay. I just point out something that didn't make the papers today but was in the Irish Times online overnight anyway and I'm surprised it wasn't more in the paper. Do you know that the ECDC has now come out with new options on close contact rules? This has apparently happened uh, where they're saying these are not evidence-based and they may imply an additional risk for transmission, but they seem to mention a pragmatic approach. So they're saying if you wanted to, and if you feel you need to, with caution, shorter quarantine for close contacts in case of high and extreme pressure on healthcare and society, testing on rapid antigen to release patients from quarantine, removing the need for vaccinated close contacts to quarantine if the health system is under extreme pressure, a resolution of fever for 24 hours instead of two days and shorter periods of isolation for essential workers. So there it is, isn't it? You, but it makes perfect sense. Again, yeah. if you if you think about the sort of that you take the very, very extreme uh, mitigation measures when you're very, very worried about the disease that's in question. But with the shift, uh, I think that seems to be moving. To, just to pick one up, uh, one point um, that Kevin was making, you know, is this idea that, well, people couldn't take any more restrictions. Like th- the evidence actually showed that when people were genuinely felt there was a significant threat, their capacity to, to take the restrictions was much higher than people had thought. So at the outset, uh, of of COVID, one of the issues was always this idea that there there'd be uh, lockdown fatigue and that you could only ask people to do uh, have restrictions for a length of time. People actually showed they were perfectly willing and probably more willing than people thought to take yeah. restrictions when there was a real threat. But I think what we're seeing now is that people are beginning to feel that the threat isn't anything as as severe as as it was, and so really the the, the whole calculus is beginning to shift. Christine, you're nodding. Yeah, and I just I think what's interesting is that um, in the Ireland thinks, you know, all the numbers that we saw this morning, that actually when people were asked about whether we should abolish all restrictions now, 73% of them said no. So there's still yeah. a huge buy-in to the level of restrictions that we have now. Well, to, people, to an amount to, of restrictions. Yeah, exactly. To everyone everyone accepts and the restrictions that we have now yeah. are, are much lighter than the restrictions we would have had this time last year. So, yeah. you know, I think there's still an amount of buy-in to some guidelines still being in place yeah. to be able to yeah. break trends I, of I think where it no. might become a little bit more problematic, though, and it goes back to the, the close contacts rules. And interestingly, Leo Varadkar was tweeting those options last night, uh, Brendan, that you were talking about there in terms of the, the less strict close contacts. But we are 
are going to enter a phase now whereby if we go through those numbers uh, and there's figures being quoted in the paper today that anywhere between 1 in 50 and 1 in 25 people in the country could have COVID-19 at the minute, that the rules aren't going to make the same sense. So, for example, I had COVID over Christmas um, and I was boosted a few days before I got COVID. And in my head, the fear is completely gone. And and I know... There's people going to shout at the radio going, no, no, you can still carry it and infect. And, and I understand that. But in my head, it was a very, very mild thing that really lasted a day. And now I feel like I've had it. I'm through it. And there is going yeah, to be an no. awful lot of people in that space. There is. But, and there are an awful lot of people as well who will tell you they have. And young, fit, healthy people I know who've had a f- fairly bad experience with it. Now, listen, we've, we've been talking around the numbers there. So let's get some um, as much clarity as we can get on them because Rachel Lavin, data journalist with the Business Post, is, is on the line. And, and Rachel, good morning. You've been deep diving into this data for the last year and a half. And you have a piece today called uh, in the Business Post, Reckoning with Omicron. And um, so you're saying that it says in that in early December, the NEFIT projection was by this weekend, the current wave would be peaking at between 20 and 25,000 cases. So they were they were spot on about official cases. But the, you're saying as well as the, the, that as they are on the front page of the Sunday, Sunday Times, the real number of cases are way higher than this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So. Typically, cases are about twice what they were confirmed pre-Omicron. But now that the testing system is really constrained, they think it could be up to 60 to 80,000 if we have 20,000 confirmed a day. So three okay. to four times what we're used to. And that's, that, so that's 1.6, so 80, 80,000 is 1.6% of the population are getting Omicron every day, potentially. Potentially. Is that right? It is. These numbers are, you know, beyond what we would have imagined, you know, two months ago. And if the current numbers continued at that rate, you would have one in two people infected or exposed by the end of the month. But NEFIS don't think that will happen. They think, according to their models, that most closely match the recent case rise, cases will peak this week. And they actually think they should peak by today. Now, do we still think that, Rachel? I mean, cases are tracking, they're still tracking a scenario that matches... Um, one of their models that shows it plummeting from this week onwards. And that's plummeting quite dramatically to below 10,000 by the end of the month, below 1,000 by the end of February, and below 100 a day by the end of the March. Optimistic, but that's what NEFIT are hoping for. And I think that's the reason that government and NEFIT seem so confident, allowing schools to reopen, not introducing any more restrictions. It's based on these projections. Okay. Now, obviously, we can't go by the official PCR test numbers anymore or whatever. I suppose one real number we have is, well, we have ICU and we have hospitalisation rates. How are they they comparing with previous waves or how are they comparing with the expectations? Well, it's getting harder and harder to model, even though the projection for hospitalisation rates is more optimistic at the moment. So this time last year, if there had been, you know, the same amount of cases and there were three, we knew that 3% would end up in hospital a week or two from then. We knew that 0.3% would end up in ICU and we knew that a certain percentage then were going to die. So you could almost predict it like clockwork when we hit certain case numbers. Uh, But hospitalisation rates have already come down. They were 3% roughly 
pre-vaccination has come down to 2% last summer, 1% in December with vaccination, 1% in December with um, boosters. And now we're seeing them slightly come down a bit more. At the moment, they look about 0.75%. So that's already a 25% reduction with Omicron. The hope is it will come down more. Remember, a small portion of a big number is still a big mm. number. We have a massive number. We have the highest, one of the highest incidence rates in the world right now. The worry is, are we pushing our luck a bit? Are we overbetting on the risk reduction Omicron presents? So far, cases were tracking last year's waves um, in terms of hospitalizations. But luckily, in the last few days, they've plateaued a little. Will that continue? We won't know. We won't know how bad hospitalizations are and therefore what the hospitalization rate is until a week after cases peak, because that's when hospitalizations will peak and hopefully we'll have overcome the first hurdle. So the first hurdle is this week, seeing if cases come down. The next one will be next week, seeing if hospitalizations fall. So far, we are hopeful that it won't be like last year. Last year, there were 2,000 in hospital at peak. Um, this year, based on the similar projections to case numbers from NEFET, they think it will peak at between 1,000 and 1,600 in hospital. We're already coming up on 1,000. So the question is, will it follow the same trajectory? Um, cases have fallen, or sorry, have plateaued a little in their growth in the last few days, but it's only been two to three days, so we have to yeah, watch it really yeah, closely. Yeah, and, they, and they can, they can, the hospitalizations can jump again very quickly. I think we saw, if I heard the news rightly, there a bit of a jump again this morning. Um, Christine Losher, you were looking at uh, Rachel's piece, I know, in the Business Post today. What, what are your observations? And it would seem from what Rachel's saying is that th- this gamble she talks about. Even if this plateaus for another week and the hospitalizations keep going up, we could still be in trouble with pure hospitalizations, couldn't we? Yeah, I suppose the only positive thing about some of the hospitalizations is that some of the information we're getting from consultants within the hospitals is that the the stays are shorter. That actually when people are being hospitalized, they're being hospitalized for a much shorter time. Mm. The ventilation needs are much less and we're seeing that play out in different in other countries, particularly in the UK. So I think the hospitalizations are not the kind of severe hospitalizations. And then I suppose the other information that we got this week was that many people are being hospitalized and COVID is a complicating factor, but it's not actually why they're mm. being hospitalized. So I think it's hard to I read think, the Paul, numbers. On, on, on Friday, Paul Cullen was writing in the Irish Times that on Friday, 41% of the hospitalizations were only tested positive when they came into hospital. Now, he made the point that some people could have been sick with COVID and not managed to access a PCR test, but still it does suggest, doesn't it, that some of it is so-called incidental? It does, and I think, you know, you know, Rachel's piece, I think, highlights all the way through that it's hard to read the numbers when we don't really have the numbers, you know. So yeah. I think that the fact that, you know, and Rachel does it really well, you can see the reduction in hospitalisations as we've gone through our vaccination programmes and that further reduction because of the lack of severity that Omicron is conferring. We're in a really good place compared to where we were but it's it is about where how high do those numbers go I, I don't think we've plateaued because I don't think we're measuring the numbers correctly so I don't think it's going to be another week or two before we really start to see whether we have plateaued really? or even started to drop so the hospitalizations will lag slightly behind that so I think it could be towards the end of January before we really know where we are with hospitalization impact. Okay, so 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 Alan, going back to then the um, close contact and absenteeism and everything, and uh, you've picked out um, like there's pieces in all the papers say the Sunday Times business is feeling the brunt of Omicron staff shortages, business post absence rates predicted to rise to thirty percent. This is only going to go up and up, but at the same time, if we have a, a hospital 
system that's potentially compromised. Now, how more compromised it is than any winter, hard to say at the moment, but... No, look, it's it's very and in the way it's been very difficult from the outset uh, of the pandemic to sort of balance these uh, sort of competing needs to protect the the population from disease, to protect the health system, protect the ongoing sort of you know economic and social life of the country. But I I, I think again to sort of return to earlier remarks, it's just as the nature of the disease change. I think that calculation shifts in a particular direction. Um, and, so so I go back mm. to the question I asked Christine earlier. Are we fighting the last battle here? Is that, is that well, what we're I, doing? Well, I mean, I, I don't really know. Yeah. Uh, Does it seem I, like I, that, though? It certainly feels a, a bit like, but I mean, everybody still puts in the caveats, and Christine would have yeah. mentioned this earlier, that, that we don't know if there's going to be another strange variant or whatever like that that is going to cause greater difficulty. But if we put that aside and we see where, the, where this is going, it seems that the, possibly the bigger challenge now for the health system is actually absenteeism uh, from the people. I think somebody, I forget which particular article, but it, it describes the health system being squeezed from two ends. One is the inflow of people mm. uh, into it but then the other is is the outflow of the staff uh, where I think we're, we're looking at um, whatever it is 10 or 15 percent uh, of the folks may be out at the moment so extraordinary levels uh, of absenteeism this is coming up in the schools uh, and a range of other sort of settings so all, all, I, I'm not sure exactly where you know the, the correct position is to be in terms of isolating but it certainly you would have a sense that as the severity of the disease shifts well then so should the re, you know the, the nature of the restrictions and the severity of those restrictions sh- should shift and that the balance can can move in the direction of being more concerned about ensuring that we have the sort of economic and social and sort of public service life of the country is operating as well as possible. Kevin, when you mentioned the TDs uh, going off the radar there for a week or two, you think of them all going home uh, before the treaty vote happened and getting it in the neck from their constituency. I presume a lot of politicians were getting a lot of grief about businesses that had to stay closed and about the, the general close contact situation over Christmas as well. Yeah, I think it's and it's been very tough for businesses and there's almost a kind of a two tier thing happening because uh, so many people are are getting it or being close contacts. You you have companies who can operate remotely um find that a lot of people who are sick with with covid but they're still able to work if they're at home on a laptop or, or, or working remotely. Mm. Whereas it's the, I suppose, those businesses where you need human contact, where you physically need the person uh, serving in a bar or in a nursing home or in a school. Um, and they're the challenges. And I suppose the schools debate was kind of the, the, the most prominent one of that. And I think that's what TDs would have probably heard even more than hospitality, okay. because as the numbers yeah. spiked, um, I think people pulled back from the hospitality sector anyway. So I think schools kind of became the focal point of all that for a lot of TDs. So I think they're probably relieved and, and it's kind of backed up with the figures today in that poll where most people think opening the schools was right, even if they don't think the overall handling of the school situation has been, has been done the best. Christine, do you think we were right to open schools? Yeah, I mean, look, nobody wants the schools to close. And I mean, there was never going to be a conversation about not opening schools. I think at all costs they were going to be opened because we've seen the impact on kids over the last two years. So I think, you know, my biggest issue with opening the schools was the manner in which it was done, which was there's certainly things we could have done better to prepare better. And I think two years into a pandemic, we can't say we didn't know or we were reacting. We know a lot of information. And I think sometimes we're kind of slow to use the information to be proactive about preparation rather than reactive. So I think the key things around schools were, and one thing that really, I suppose, irks me was the lack of of just 
provision of FFP2 masks for staff. You know, staff have have been exposed to a lot of, you know, exposure to infection in schools in the last couple of months. Uh, Many of them were out before Christmas. Many of them then caught it before Christmas and isolated over the entire Christmas period and are now back. So Mm. very simple things like mass deliveries to schools of FFP2 masks. I think the other key issue that I would see is that I think that you know, access to testing for parents for their children, I think is a massive issue at the moment. I mean, if you think about parents have to make decisions about whether they send their child to school or not. And I think that's been hampered. Would you be comfortable with them making them on the basis of antigen testing? Yeah, I mean, I think antigen testing um, has worked really well. We've all used it, I think, very effectively. Um, I think that, you know, antigen testing, the barriers to antigen testing for lots of parents are the volume they need and the cost. But also, I think the lack of, you know, the, the rule change around PCRs that if you're between four and 39, you can't have a PCR test until you've had three positive antigen tests that you get from the HSE. By the time you get into PCR test, you're probably seven days into isolation. It's actually a waste of time. But okay, I think but they were trying to target the PCRs at the more vulnerable and the people who PCRs need PCRs should be targeted at people who are symptomatic and antigen negative or who are close contacts and have vulnerable people in their household. So antigen okay. testing, for the most part, in terms of reporting cases, is sufficient. If people had issues with false positive on antigen tests, the best way around that is to buy a different... If you get a, a positive antigen test, you buy a different make of an antigen test, and if you're still positive again. on it, you've got COVID. But okay. I, I think coming back to the, the testing, when we opened schools in September... There was walk-in PCR testing every morning. So if you were a parent and you're worried about your child or whether you should send them to school, you could walk in, get a PCR test that morning and have your result by the next day. Yeah, but that's just not there was no at the moment, is it? But if we prioritise PCR testing for the best use, it's possible. The use of PCR testing for confirmatory positives on that okay, test is a complete you. waste of resources. Okay, okay. Can you explain to me something that came up yesterday? And I think some, I, no, you're not um, a Norla Hegarty, I know, but if there's a HEPA filter in the classroom, do they still have to keep the windows open? It sounds like they do, does it? It sounds like they would still have to have a degree of ventilation, but not the degree that they're requiring at the moment. I mean, I think the stories that we're hearing at the moment from schools is that as soon as you close the windows with the number of people in the room, the CO2 monitor is going. So and obviously the weather is not helping things at the moment either. But HEPA filters have scientific evidence to support their use in these settings um, whether they, they don't need the, the, the windows to be open all of the time but they do need a degree of ventilation but not the degree that we're using at the moment Yeah Alan the, the, keeping the schools open is critical to the economy as well then isn't it? Uh, it, it's certainly very important, but I but I I prioritise the importance of the actual kids uh, before we yeah, start talking about yeah, the economy. Okay. And again, um, I mean, certainly some work conducted by my colleagues in the institute on this has really, really uh, shone a light on the, the different impact of school closures on kids from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Mm. That it has been just heartbreaking, uh, in a sense, to see that kids where say if you're living in a home, if there could be space uh, constraints, you don't have access to uh, tech devices. You may not have a parent who who, who sort of tech savvy uh, and and knows exactly how to run all these sort of things. So we've known, and we know this all the time. There's you know extreme um, you know differences across socioeconomic groups in Ireland in terms of how they they they, they sort of get on in the schooling system. Uh, COVID magnified a lot of those uh, disadvantages and those difficulties. So I think the primary concern was you know around the kids themselves. But there is that knock on effect, and of course then there's also the crashes. 
uh, are really, really important in this area as well, uh, that if the creches aren't functioning, a lot of ki- uh, parents cannot actually go out to work and do what needs to be done. So the knock-on effects are uh, are very severe. Yeah. Um, Rachel Lavin, are you still with us? Yes, I'm here. Yeah. Rachel, um, so, so in terms of all that, we, we, from the data that you're looking at and the, and the modelling that you're examining and everything, does it feel to you as if it's forward momentum from here on, that schools stay open, that people start going back to work, that, 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 you, know, that you know this thing of we will never go backwards and we did have to go backwards. Is it, does it feel all forwards now? Well, that's why this week is so crucial. If we can surpass the cases peak, I would be optimistic. I would be very optimistic. But one thing I'll say on that is NEFIT projected cases would also peak last September. And at the same time, they opened schools. Now, at the time, cases did peak in adults, but they began to rapidly rise in younger age groups. And that's why it seemed like cases stayed the same and then began to rapidly rise. It was the kids rising rapidly. They drove that platter, did they? What? They drove that platter, did they? They drove us not actually peaking. They they drove a plateau in September and drove cases to continue to rise until... Remember, we just couldn't get those case numbers down last autumn. And you would just worry if it would have... I worry if it would have a similar effect um, on these projections. If we have opened the schools, will that sustain the high numbers? But then again, the virus is going to burn out soon. It's going to infect, you know, if it continued at the current rate, one in two people by the end of the month. So or at least infected or exposed. So the question then is, this virus will burn through the population if it continues at this rate. Um, I don't think we would see serious action from government unless it does, it does go past the peak this week or if hospitalizations go beyond the projections. So okay. again, that's why I'm closely watching the numbers this week. Okay, Rachel Lavin, data journalist with the Business Post. Thank you very much. Christine, just before we go to a break, when I hear burnout, I think, remember India announced at one point that COVID had burnt itself out and we were all thinking, it's going to burn itself out. It did. But like, you would think at this rate, if 1.6 of the population are getting it, that's like half the population in a month, that 48% in a month. Like, it can't keep going like this, can it? Yeah, I mean, burnout with a virus is kind of hard to predict. Um, One of the things that we know is that Omicron can reinfect someone who's had Delta quite recently. We've seen lots of uh, lots of cases of that and in other countries. One of the things that it's too early to tell is whether or not Omicron can reinfect people who've had Omicron. And the reason for that is, is that people kind of label Omicron as vaccine evasive. It's not. It's immune evasive. So we don't know if the immunity you're going to get with an Omicron infection is going to last very long and is going to protect you from a reinfection with Omicron. Oh, God, you've that's the bit, whole other spectrum now. But that is okay. the bit that we, that, that's, what, that's why there's always this little piece okay. of caution in the background is that because we're, like Omicron was announced on the 26th of November. Okay. We're only five weeks on, six weeks on from that. So until we start seeing that the immunity wall that we get with Omicron is actually protecting against reinfection with Omicron, then I think we've lots of reasons to be optimistic that... So Kevin Doyle sitting in his remote will, box there feeling smug that he had Omicron at Christmas and it didn't knock a spot off him. He, he, well, yeah. well, I, well, I hope that, I hope that reinfection is not going to happen with Omicron. Um, and 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 then we will see that the virus just will have no place left to go. Yeah. Okay. Please God. Right. We we'll take a break and we'll come back and talk about many other important things. So Christine Losher, Kevin Doyle, and Professor Alan Barrett staying with us. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio One. 
Welcome back, Christine Losher, Kevin Doyle and Professor Alan Barrett still with us. Um, so it, it, we're back to everyone being an epidemiologist and everyone's an expert. There's people texting in, telling us uh, how to swab, what masks we should be wearing, everything. But listen to this, right? This, this is kind of an example of something I think that there is a lot of around. I became symptomatic on January 1st, couldn't get an antigen test on January 3rd. The earliest I could get a PCR test was today. This symptom, this system is not working. My case has not been counted yet. And I think a lot of people have had that experience. And, and people also seem to be getting close contact calls like a, a week or 10 days after. But look, I'm sure everyone's doing their best. Now, we move on. Um, Kevin Doyle, you've been taking a look at the Sunday Independent Ireland Thinks opinion poll. What jumped out at you? The contradictions, to be honest, Brent. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose we live in times of great uncertainty and so maybe it shouldn't come as a huge surprise, but... Um, it, there's a lot of questions in that poll around the, the political setup at the minute and what we think of COVID and all the rest of it. And really, when you combine all the answers, what we're actually saying is on one hand, but on the other hand. Um, so if you look at the even just the basic p- party political setup, um, perhaps no surprise, Sinn Féin running away on 33 percent, up another two points. Uh, Fine Gael down two on 23 and then uh, Fianna Fáil back on 19 and you kind of go up two on 19 Fianna Fáil Fianna Fáil up two on 19 yeah so um, no great change really from from where those polls have kind of been for for months now and you kind of assume uh, Sinn Féin running away with it and it's only a matter of time till Mary Lou MacDonald is the next Taoiseach Um, but then they asked a, a rather interesting question to lead on from that which was what government would you actually like um, if you had to choose a, a government and it turns out that more people would like the current combination of uh, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Green Party than would actually like a Sinn Féin led government of the left bringing in some of the, the smaller parties like Labour and the Sock Dems um, and then very very small numbers want a Sinn Féin Fianna Fáil mix or a Sinn Féin Fine Gael mix so it, it's kind of interesting and it taps yeah, but, into something like, Pascal Donoghue trying to get But if you, if you just straight, sorry Kevin, if you add up like uh, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and the Green Party, you get um, 23, 42, you get 45% anyway for the three of them as against if you add Sinn Féin to the Sock Dems and you, you know, you get 37. So like the, the you know, the, the, the numbers make sense, don't they? They do, and yeah. it kind of goes against the narrative, and it's something Pascal Donoghue was trying to get at before Christmas, and a, a lot of people were kind of raising eyebrows in, in what the hell was he talking about, suggesting uh, that the parties could kind of put forward some sort of platform uh, at the next general election while while running on their own tickets that they would present a possibility of a government um, quite similar to what we actually have at the moment. Um, and so but that is actually Alan, bearing, well, bared out here. Yeah, sorry, Kevin. Alan, what Sinn Féin will say to that is that they are clearly in all these opinion polls, and if they are in an election, the largest party by far, that um, they should not be shut out of government by the others, isn't it? Well, well, possibly not. But I mean, we, we have a history in Ireland that Fianna Fáil, many occasions in history, were the largest party and were shut out of government. So uh, I don't think they, they can make that that argument. Uh, the, the sort of the power play around government formation will be fascinating. Can I just add, a, there's an additional layer, though, in the, the opinion poll today, which is absolutely fascinating. So it's it's one thing to learn, um, you know, the support underlying the, the, the parties. But in, in this poll, they go a, a, a little bit deeper and try 
to get at the reasons why. Uh, and, and this is where there's a write-up by uh, Kevin Cunningham that is really, really fascinating. So obviously they ask, you know, what party do you support? But they also ask then questions about what do you think is the biggest sort of challenge facing Ireland? And again, you know, you get the usual lineup. It's housing, healthcare, cost of living, all those sort of things. And very, very often then your sort of your concern on a particular issue might drive uh, the, the support that you give for a particular uh, party. And I think for a while we would have thought, well, you know, Sinn Féin seem to be doing well in housing and healthcare. So maybe that's, you know, it's people who are worried about those sort of things that translates then into a, you know, a preference for Sinn Féin. But what's fascinating here is one of the options that's provided is around uh, what's described as government corruption and incompetence. Okay, and the way um, Kevin has written this up, the the idea seems to be that if you have a view that Ireland is a sort of a, you know, a a corrupt country or a country really where you remember the old phrase that it's who you know rather than what you know Mm. is the way for advancement, that a a, a lot of people who have that that, another way. If you don't feel you have a stake in in, in the system, that's another very good. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So but what what seems to be clearly happening here is that there is a sort of a, a growing mood uh, amongst the the sort of population generally. And, you know, again, it's sort of backed up. This is where things like Zappone Gate and Champagne Gate and a range of these other things sort of feed into that sort of a narrative that people who really have a view that that's the way Ireland works seem to be leaning more in the Sinn Féin direction, where it's people who, who have the alternative view and maybe a sort of a more meritocratic view uh, of Ireland uh, are leaning in the other direction. Or, or you could so, call them people who benefit from the status quo. Well, it it, it could well be. Now, again, you know, very often, though, it can be a little bit more sort of nuanced than that. Uh, But 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 it's easy to view the country as a meritocracy if you've come from a good middle class home and got sent to a good good college and all that. And you think, oh, yeah, I'm here on my own merit. But I I think it's the case that something like 66% of the population, you know, there's quite a large group of people, uh, some of whom may actually be doing like reasonably okay, but they still sort of share that view. But the important point here is that it's, it's not so much that people are sort of, you know, obviously, Sinn Féin have a battery of policies that appeal to a range of people. But according to this article, the thesis seems to be that a lot of what is driving the, the Sinn Féin um, popularity is that sort of sense of how society has actually been run. OK, all right. Look, I'm going to leave that there because there are much more important things to be getting on with now. Um, do we have Belinda Jackson? There are much more important things to be getting on with, which is um, the, um, the story of... Uh, of Operation Transformation and the criticism that um, it um, it attracted this week. Um, so uh, w- when we uh, Alan and and um, Alan and Kevin, you were both looking at that. Kevin, do you, will you t- fill us in on what happened first this week? I mean, it's a kind of an annual thing, but I think probably more so this year. It is. It, 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 there's always been, I suppose, a level of criticism of Operation Transformation, but it has been running for an incredibly long time. It has very good viewer figures. People forget that Jerry Ryan um, was actually the original host of this. So we're going back uh, quite quite a long way. But it's, it's strange that this year it has kind of 
grown a life of its own. So you have groups like Bodywise critical of the focus that I suppose it is put on, putting on weight and need to lose weight uh, over, I suppose, the short term of a television programme. Um, there was criticism of the way the contestants are presented on television that, um, you know, we've seen them for, for years, the idea of you, you get in the lycra suit, you get up on the scales, uh, you get a clap if you get it right, you get a, a kind of a frown if you if you haven't lost the weight target for this week. Um, and it's kind of interesting because Operation Transformation always ran on this idea of a community um, that people would get out and kind of do their couch to 5k thing that the leaders on the television programme were inspirations and that you would follow their plans and work with them um, and so I think this backlash this year is a, is probably a little bit unexpected and maybe it's uh, I know you're writing yourself Brendan today about how we've had the crankiest week of the year and I think Operation Transformation has perhaps got caught up in the crankiest week of the year Okay and listen I'll just read a bit from the RT statement just to be fair here Operation Transformation has evolved considerably over the years they say and it now encompasses a more holistic approach to adopting and maintaining a healthy lifestyle and they're talking about how the weekly check-in now looks at a range of health indicators blood pressure cholesterol hydration sleep quality and psychological well-being. Alan, you were looking at a, a piece in the Sunday Times, I think, about our, a third of diet show subjects put lost weight back on. I would have said that's a fairly good um, batting average if two thirds of them didn't. Yeah, no, I, I have to say, I, I actually, I, I don't watch a huge amount of sort of television, scheduled television, um, part of sort of the, the streaming group now, but but I, I've, I find I find Operation Transformation fascinating from a, a variety of perspectives. But one of the questions, probably the sort of research... What, what are your variety of perspectives? Well, let me... Put, uh, I'll start with the research perspective on this, yeah. OK? And I think one of the questions I've always had is about the long-term effects for the individuals involved, OK? Because you can imagine if the entire nation is watching you, you know the sort of notion, like even in your own family, like if you sort of say, well, I'm not going to, you know, drink in January or I'm not going to have biscuits, uh, you worry your own family's pressure on you you, I think, has a sort of very strong effect. The idea that the whole nation is essentially looking on you, I'd imagine, has this effect then of really um, getting you to be much Eddie more disciplined. On, yeah. And then, of course, the question is, when the entire nation is not watching you, what actually happens? And I've always had this sort of interest in, you know, the sort of life after Operation Transformation. And as you say, you know, the sort of figures that are coming here aren't uh, too bad. The the one of the other questions I've always had about, and this is where I, I almost sort of feel a bit uncomfortable when I'm watching this, okay? It's uh, it's a very positive, the idea, of course, here is very, very positive. And again, in a, you know, we don't talk about the, uh, the the epidemic of obesity anymore in the way that we used to because, uh, you know, it, o- other things got in the way. But this really is the biggest sort of health challenge of our generation uh, and it's something we need to take very, very uh, and seriously. Then, and then, that's, so is there a sense, though, that if we talk about that and we have this kind of weight that this turns into a weight obsession which on the other end of the scale triggers yeah. people to have eating disorders well, this, or triggers I, I, people I, who I, have I, eating I don't, disorders. I don't know enough and this is like it's very much sort of a, a lay perception on it but I certainly in viewing the show I mean obviously you get the life stories and you you do get this sort of sense that very often people's weight problems are related to other issues in their life and that sort of whole holistic sense so yeah. I think it's very very positive but if I can just say the one thing that, I, that sort of troubles me a little bit is the weigh-ins and the optics of this that you have somebody again uh you know overweight in their lycra but they're put standing beside Catherine Thomas who looks very very elegant and in front of these sort of before who, people who are behind can, us and she can't help looking like of that of course and, and uh, not but I think I, in fairness I think yeah. I did read during the week as well them say I don't have it there in that statement but that um I think people are given a choice as to how they present at at 
Dwayne. Agree, but, but, but can I just you. say, and yeah. this is a purely personal sort of feeling, my discomfort sort of comes along in the sense that you have this group of the, the presenter and the four people who are almost like in the camp of, oh, we all have our stuff together and we've worked out this life thing. Yeah, okay, and yeah, then yeah, they're yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. judging this unfortunate person who's standing there in lycra uh, about whether the, their weight went up. And, you know, we yeah, could sort of I dissect the, the show. And yeah. that, that's just the one yeah. part of it that I do have a little sort of discomfort with. And that's as a and viewer. And let's say in fairness to them that they do try and empathise with the people and everything and not judge no, them ab- too much. Absolutely. But, you know, and again, yeah, just to be yeah. clear, this is the major health challenge of our time. You know, yeah. in certain countries, the United States included, uh, life expectancy is actually falling for the first time ever, partly related to things like obesity. So this is a really, you know, important area. I think it's really good public sector broadcasting, but it's not to say then that there aren't elements in it which we can have a good discussion about to see, well, are they getting this right or not? Yeah, yeah. Brenda Power has a piece in the Sunday Times, Christine, and she's basically, I think the headline is, um, I'm, I'm Sorry if this article may trigger you. I'm talking about fat or whatever. This column may be critical of obesity. Caution, right? Um, Are we afraid to talk about that in fear about about obesity, which is the major health crisis uh, facing the Western world, for fear of triggering uh, people at the other end of the scale? And, And it's not even the other end of the scale. It's a completely different issue, actually. I think obesity is one thing. Eating disorders are not the opposite of obesity. No, they're not. They're actually, in lots of ways, completely unrelated. Um, The only relationship, I suppose, that kind of connects the two of them is that there is usually an underlying, you know, psychological uh, issue that somebody's dealing with that actually this is the expression of 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 that is 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 in the way that they eat um i suppose the 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 pc thing about you know comment on 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 people's weight and, and obesity is is i think what what shies people away from talking about it but i suppose the biggest issue we have is that obesity is one of the biggest challenges that we have it's going to impact hugely on our healthcare system in the coming years um, and actually, what what we saw very clearly during the COVID pandemic was it was a huge risk factor for outcomes of, of people that have COVID. So Were we afraid to say that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think people shy away from anything that might be perceived as not PC these days. I think we're all very hesitant about what we talk about and whether you're allowed to say that or how how does, would somebody perceive you if you talk about that? Or you might, or, or you might hurt somebody in fairness. Absolutely, like, yeah. but, I, but I think that there's now a recognition that obesity is is more of a clinical problem that has, I suppose, deep-rooted in other issues that somebody might have and should be treated holistically. But the bottom line is, is that it's clinically a huge problem for people. It's predisposition to type 2 diabetes, impact on cardiovascular disease. But what we've seen for the last decade is there's a really close relationship between obesity and your immune system in terms of how well it functions. Mm. We saw that play out in COVID. People who were obese and ended up in hospital and ICU did very poorly in terms of outcome. So we can't shy away from the fact that it is a significant issue for people that will impact not just on how they live their everyday lives, but on their predisposition to other conditions, which may be really, really difficult for them, but also difficult for the healthcare system to manage. So, And you don't mean that in a judgmental way? No, absolutely, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Okay. Uh, um, I, I would say that I do think it like, all that aside, People are obsessed, you know. People come up to me and I think, they come up and they say, is that you? And I think they're going to admire my work now or something. 
How much weight did you lose? How how did you lose the weight? Like uh, multiple times every day, like and that's that's all that people want to talk to me about. So it is, it's an obsession out there. Anyway, I know our another one of our obsessions this week was of course Novak Djokovic, and and his much discussed uh, visa hearing in Australia is set for tomorrow their time. I think it's actually tonight our time if you want to stay up. So uh, he continues, of course, to be held in isolation in Melbourne, and he's awaiting the outcome of his appeal against the decision by the Australian Border Force to cancel his entry visa and deport him. So I'm joined now by Belinda Jackson, who's a Melbourne-based journalist and author. Good morning, Belinda. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So what's the latest update? There's been a few developments overnight. Um, Well, they have. um, As you know, uh, um, he has confirmed tested positive. um, And the um, the lawyers have said uh, the lawyers have uh, filed an, um, a delay for a, a delay. A, sorry, um, the, his lawyers have said that uh, he was given uh, he was satisfied the exemption to enter the country um, because uh, because he has. Uh, um, because he had he had tested positive in December, and we've seen in black and white, haven't we? They, they, well, they've written in their deposition quotes that he seems to have been given an assurance that he was good to go, wasn't he? That's right. However, um, the Department of Home Affairs is now saying that um, that that it, that it applies only to Australian citizens, um, of course, of which Djokovic is not, um, and that the Serbian national. Um, doesn't have the right to to enter Australia under that under that exemption. Okay, and now the the other thing I think that raised a few eyebrows was these pictures that em- that emerged uh, yesterday. They're in the newspapers today. So w- when does he say he tested positive? Because they, they, uh, these pictures are said to have happened the next day. Is that right? That's right. He's supposed to have tested positive on December on December the sixteenth. But those photos of him taking. With uh, with young tennis players was was actually taken the day after he um, he had tested positive. So he was he was seen with about twenty uh, play, tennis players in Belgrade. And what is it? What would you, how would you characterize the mood towards him now uh, in Australia? Uh, I know things it's been shifting a little bit, and people kind of blaming the politicians. And there's a bit of embarrassment now at, at how this has become an international sensation. But are most people still firmly against Djokovic coming into the country? Um, well, the I mean, I mean you know, we uh, I, I feel that the mood there's a lot of anger in. In Melbourne, in particular, where the Australian Open is played, um, there are concerns that the event itself would become a super spreader event. Um, also, you know, we have incredibly high um, cases. You know, we recorded over forty thousand cases yesterday. Um, so, yes, there there has. I mean, a lot of people are angry. They, you know, everybody when you're travelling, you have to read your exemption. You have to read the fine print, and it's not unheard of for people to be turned back at the border for for um, not fulfilling all of the requirements, you know, if you're travelling to New York on certain borders, if you, you know, as a, as a, even as a journalist, you know, you need a particular, a particular visa, and and people do get turned back at the border, and a lot of people are saying, you know, he's been so reluctant to declare his status in the past, and um, but you know, he has form, and and when so many people have spent, you know, up to two years not being able to see their own family to yeah. be able to travel in and out of Australia, that's really, I think, hit. A nerve um, with Australians that that while we have been held 
in our own countries and not being able to see our family, should we let an international superstar know, you know, no matter that it is a, you know, the world number one, does he have more right to travel than Australians do? And that's really the question a lot of us are asking. Okay, uh, Belinda Jackson, Melbourne-based journalist and author. Uh, thank you for that. Um, Christine, have you been watching this? Yeah, I have. Um, and I, I suppose my philosophy is you, everyone should be treated the same and, and exemptions for the kind of personality that you are really shouldn't shouldn't come into it. So I think there's a lot of people on the fence kind of thinking, oh, isn't it great that, that somebody, you know, because they, they were famous and a celebrity is, is being treated the same as everybody else. But I think the bottom line is, is that somebody didn't do their homework uh, the, the stuff wasn't worked out beforehand and now it's kind of been blown out of all proportion that one person's not been allowed into Australia. Australia, everybody knows Australia is a difficult country to navigate in terms of getting in and getting out. And they have had a situation, as as Belinda rightly said, where their own citizens have not been allowed to move in and out. So I think my sense would be that, you know, we, we treat everybody the same when it comes to matters in terms of visas and movement um, and that we shouldn't be making exceptions. So, I mean, somebody didn't do their homework and this is the consequences. Yeah, well, somebody didn't get their vaccine by the sounds of it and these are the consequences. Yeah, I mean, is he's been... Not he, what it comes he, down he, to? Like, he doesn't declare his vaccine status. I mean, I know he's spoken out about mandatory vaccination. Well, no, he um, also said been, I wouldn't be in favour of vaccination. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that, mandatory, I think. And I think that whatever grounds he, he thought he had had an exemption on um i don't think a choice of of getting of not getting vaccinated is a grounds for exemption so um he, there was no indication that there was any other medical grounds this has now come out that he apparently had covid um again these are all things that should have been you know dealt with before he ever left the country so there's been a bit bit of a mess up somewhere but he if he doesn't satisfy the criteria then he goes home yeah, well, look, you know what, what we can say about it uh, above all else was it was badly needed this week anyway, wasn't it? And sure, it gave us all uh, gave us all something else to talk about, even 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 something to distract us here in, in this fantastic, lively hour. Uh, so thank you very much, Professor Christine Losher, uh, Kevin Doyle and Professor Alan Barrett. And it's just coming up to 12 noon now and we'll go to the newsroom and Susan Jackson.